Well, here's, this is going to reveal a little bit, maybe it might reveal more about me than any of the topic, um, as maybe that's actually a no-duh about anybody who gets up. But um, my, I typically do this little thing that I'm going to do on retreat with Generations people, and typically on a Sunday morning. And it's uh, my approach on this topic, as well as really a lot of things, is I tend to zoom out to 35,000 feet. And I don't know if it's my academic stuff that I got in me or whatever, but I tend to, um, I'm always asking why or how to get there. You know, I, I want to see the whole globe. I just don't want to see, you know, a map of KC. I just tend to do that. Um, it doesn't tend to answer anything. I think it brings some sense of uh, kind of knowing or peace or something to me, but it doesn't typically answer any questions. Uh, matter of fact, it, may, it makes me usually want to do more research. So here's what I've been doing. Um, I have, oh, I have uh, in my studies, I ran across a... Um, a philosopher, okay, and he's still alive, he's in his 80s, his work, by the way, interestingly enough, is, uh, this is the Bible, um, his work, interestingly enough, Charles Taylor, um, and this is the book, this bullet-stopping book, A Secular Age, his, his work, interestingly enough, is on self, on uh, analyzing the philosophy behind therapy or psychology on the work of identity and self. And I haven't read his stuff on that. But I have, he has a new book coming out, and I'm on the pre-buy on it. This book, I have worked through. Believe me, I have worked through this book, and it is, it is one of the more difficult books I've read. And that's, I mean, not to be too weird about it, but, and that's kind of saying something, because I've had to read some pretty serious books. And um, as a matter of fact, there are other people who, and I have several of these books, there are other people who write books on how to read this book. Okay, it's, it's one of those kind of books. But this book was written in 2007, and he, Charles Taylor, is quite influential these days. Uh, you won't ever hear about him, probably, um, unless you, you know, it's 30 years from now and you're off in school. But he'll go down with, with all the rest of them, whether it be Foucault or anybody else around there these days. Um, he's an intriguing person, and he is the one being listened to right now because Taylor is actually, in a sense, sort of the one decoding what's going on. That's just what's going on with him. So what I'm about to give you is coming from this, okay? So we'll get done here in a few months, and I'll, we can talk about it. So um, here's what we have going. It's a chalk talk because this is the way I do things. I'm visual, and so we're going to take it that way. Let's see if the... We'll start with black. Charles Taylor says, there is a three-cornered worldview. Maybe four, he says, but we'll just leave it at three. There are three positions out there in the world right now. And they, these are right now, and they're current. Of course, they were developed over years, centuries even. But this is where we're at these days. You have these three types of people out there. Ooh. Um, huh? Okay, you have um, what's called exclusive uh, humanism. It's like, 
Oh, I didn't expect this tonight. Okay. Uh, this is like, you're going to ask, like, is this going to be on the test? Is this on the midterm? And like, yes, it is. Uh, exclusive humanism or what you might want to call uh, secular humanism. But there's another one up here, and it's also a humanism, and it's secular as well. And it's called anti I didn't make these things up. They sound a little pejorative, a little demeaning, but they're not because philosophers use them, and I don't know what that means, but it means it's not. So you have exclusive humanism, and then you have um, what he calls transcendence or transcendence, like they're people, which means they're uh, beyond. This one has a little bit tougher time coming up they believe in a beyond, okay? Transcendence, secular humanist, and anti-humanist. These are the three worldviews that people have, and they don't know it, all right? They do, and you will. You'll be like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. And here's what's going on. And they are in tension with one another, and they're in a battle with one another, and they don't really know it, all right? The primary influencer on these two Oh, great. I didn't realize I was going to be spelling this. Is, uh, you guys correct me. I before E. Unless it's German and then it's 10 cents long. So uh, Nietzsche, 1880s, 1890s, the primary influencer for how we understand things. Nietzsche's whole deal was will to power. Okay? That's technical language. It means he thought... If Freud was all about sex, Nietzsche was all about power. If Marx was all about economics and money, then Nietzsche... Are you checking me, Dennis? Did I spell it right? Okay, thank you. Um, I knew he would. Um, Nietzsche's all about the will to power. Nietzsche is famous for, you know, the thing you've heard, God is dead. And what he meant by that is that we have now become the Uberman. We have moved past God. We no longer... It's not that he didn't like God. He just said we have moved past it. If you're a Richard Dawkins fan... You understand that he came up with, he goes, Dawkins says, we need a meme. By the way, Dick Dawkins, the atheist evangelist, developed the word meme, which is really fun to think about. He says, it's like God's like an appendix. We, we're kind of done with it. Uh, I'm going to call it a meme. He said that like 35 years ago. And, um, and he says we're past it. And it's really following Nietzsche, all right? So both of these um, relate to this sort of thing. The anti-humanists are the ones who say, I don't owe one minute of my life to any other human on the planet. These are, I'm going to go ahead and just make up stuff here. These are uh, sovereign state people. These are people who say, you step on my property, I'll blow your head off. These are the people that do road rage. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I do that. Like, okay, well, okay, you're anti-humanist. Uh, these are the ones, these are the ones, in Dan's world, uh, these are the ones who think like, I believe in America because America should have just one thing on the budget, a military that says, get everybody away from me. Okay? You get it? Hear about these kind of people ever now and then? Okay. Yeah, they have some, they're not anarchists in, in the pure sense. The ones that I've encountered Okay. Well, they're posers because they're using America to be anarchists, which is kind of like saying you're on a diet and you eat donuts. But, you know. These guys, then, on the other hand, the exclusive humanists are the ones, they are a child of the church, okay? They also come out of Nietzsche, and they also, in a sense, 
believe that, we, that God is dead, that God, we've moved past God, and now that really man or humanity at this point is the center of the universe. And this was at Nietzsche's writing in the 1880s, 1890s. It's at the advent of existentialism. You need to be fully realized, Maslow's hierarchy needs. You need to be fully who you are. You need to, you need to all you need to do is be like Ernest Hemingway. Orgies, shoot cigarettes out of people's mouths for days, drink and drink and drink. And by the way, when you're 61 years old, you wake up one morning in your Idaho cabin, you take a double barrel shotgun, you stick it under your chin, you blow your head off, and you say, there, I turned off my own switch, Ernest Hemingway. And I live life to my fullest. But there was no God. I did my own thing. That's following out of Nietzsche. That's not these guys, okay? In some sense, it's these. It's a little bit of borrowedness. But what this turns into is saying, we don't need God because we move past these guys, by the way, of the church. These are the ones who believe in an enchanted world. And that's the technical language on it as well. They believe there's a God beyond. They believe in an enchanted place and that they believe in something beyond humanity. Okay? It's like this. Um, here's the planet. Yes, I'm a flat earth. Society. No, I'm kidding. Uh, here's the planet. And Charles Taylor says, there is an imminent frame. I thought, that's a terrible thing, Chuck. Uh, it's imminent frame. I don't even know what you mean. Like, why don't we just call it the big bubble? Because what he's saying is, is that the secular humanist and the anti-humanist are inside this bubble. Here they are. There's one, and here's the other. And they don't like each other, by the way. But the enchanted person is outside of it. And they see a heaven. Or if it was 1500, in the year 1500, they'd see seven heavens. Okay? And they believe that there is a God. Right? There's something else out there. This is the enchanted person, the beyond, the transcendent. Um, these guys don't like them, and we're going to go into, you can gang up on each other. Okay, so this is kind of the entertaining part. And you could probably even help me out on this if you had an idea about how they gang up on each other. Now you're kind of getting the, with the flow of it. So um, these two can gang up on these guys, and this gets into politics, of course, in saying that um, you guys believe in fairy tales. You're a bunch of myth makers. You need to get over it and grow up, and someday you religious Neanderthals are going to be dead and gone and won't that be a glorious day? Okay? So these two, the church, some church, this isn't everybody, of course, and the anti-humanists can gang up on freedom and rights. Freedom of religion, you know, all this sort of thing. Leave me alone. We'll just ignore the fact that you believe in fairy tales, this person says. And we're going to gang up on these guys who are trying to impose their morals on us, their worldview. Tracking with me? You see this? Is this in your, you know, your feed every day? Because this is what I'm talking about, right? Uh, let's see, who do we need to gang up on now? Oh, these guys. Oh, yeah, well, this is easy. <laughs> you know, you NRA people, we're all over you. All right? I, didn't, I don't know if they're NRA people or not, but, um, you know, they're like, you guys don't care about anybody. And that can be the Christians, and, uh, and that can also then be the, the exclusive or the secular humanist. 
Now, it's funny that in 2007, Charles Saylor, Taylor said at that time, 2007, think about it. He said, these guys are pretty much like a non-issue. <laughs> Wonder what he would say now, you know? I mean, 11 years later, be like, this is a big deal these days, you know? I mean, the kind of anti-humanist people, suddenly, you know, their percentage of the pie went up. <laughs> um, this is the dominant one. You're, and, and so you, I mean, you should be thinking, like, why is he telling us this? Well, for one reason, I'm trying to give us a little bit of perspective of, like, how did we get here? The secular humanist, which is the dominant moral code of the day, all right? These are the ones driving everything morally these days. They, they would simply then assume that everyone has the same morals. So I'm going to make a little political commentary here. I absolutely have no basis for this. You can erase it from the tape, Luke, if you need to. But um, my, my little thought on this sort of thing is that um, these guys up here, the reason why you don't hear anything out of the Democratic National Committee, at least I don't, now maybe, I, maybe you get the direct feed or something, why you don't hear a platform or a philosophy or anything like that is because they already assume that everyone knows their platform. This is just the way the world is. And, and anybody who doesn't believe this is deplorable. They just don't get it. They don't understand that everyone should understand what they understand about morals and about people and about the economics, about the way the world works. Surely everybody in this day and age has caught up. That's following sort of the Nietzsche and the existential thing. Like everyone understands that we don't need the church anymore. And these people, oh my gosh, we need to ship them off to an island somewhere and let them duke it out. Um, but we are the real moral people these days. We are, we are the new church. Very moral, very idealistic, and very uh, assuming because they're inside the bubble, okay, that this is the entire realm of what's going, what's going on. Charles Taylor, in part of his thesis in the Big Thick book, is part of his thing is he says it's interesting in, in this one in particular as well as this one, not so much this one because they ha they've had to deal with it, that these folk have no concept that they have a construct, that they have, they have something, um, what's his words? He uses several words for it. Um, but it's a, it, that they have a program, that it's something that they adopted. They think everyone has it welling up from within. Now, if you went back to the church in 1500, right, back in the good old days, you know, pre-Reformation and this sort of thing, everyone knew they were a sinner. And they knew they needed to go to confession to take care of their sin. And they had to take care of all those kind of issues. Everyone knew there was a heaven and a hell. They knew there were demons and there were angels. Because you can sit around and you think like, why did people ever think that an indulgence, buying an indulgence is going to get your soul out of purgatory? And why, what, how stupid were those peasants? Because they should have known that if they gave, you know, 3,000 drachma or whatever they were, you know, or uh, whatever the Italian coin is. Um, you know, that they're somehow going to get out of, you know, jail, so to speak, you know, purgatory. It's because it was a pervasive issue in all of culture that everyone is a sinner. You have a sin problem, and the church, by the way, has your solution for you. Okay, if you give money, right? It was just pervasive. Uh, and by the way, um, and for you retreatants who've been with me on this, you kind of track with this thing. And by the way, what, what was once then in 1500 a personal sin has now become, you don't need a priest, you need a therapist. And you're in process. We don't have clergy, we don't have churches, 
we have therapy. Everyone is unhealthy and getting healthier. What's replaced then anything transcendent is over here then a long, wandering goal, um, unspecified goal and journey towards a bright future and an El Dorado. No longer do you need grace and mercy. You need technology and science and um, things like this will get you where you need to be. Education. If everyone can be educated and everyone can become, you know, get a smartphone, then you don't need to have God or have anything transcendent. These are the new theologies, if you want to put it that, in this church, because this is actually a church of a sort, because it's a moral. They're more moralist than these people oftentimes and rigidly fundamentalist about it on certain aspects of it. They will, I've, I've had the finger wagged at me because I'm one of these people because I don't know any better by these folk on moral issues. Not about the gay thing, by the way, on other stuff, okay? So they have this big assumption about it and, um, and therapy seems to be the mode of how things are going on. The, the problem then for me being down here in the transcendent thing is like, where's the forgiveness and where's the reconciliation? And where's the grace? It seems to be assumed and everyone's in process. And I, Garrett always, I don't know, you're polite enough to laugh at me. I always say it's like Star Trek, you know. I know it should be Star Wars around here, but it actually is really more realistically Star Trek. It's like someday we'll all arrive at this place. We don't need any money. We, everyone will be, there will be no more hunger and we'll zoom around the galaxy saying, uh-uh-uh, lizard people, be nice to each other. You guys are having a war and you're not supposed to. Look at us. We've got it figured out on planet Earth. And so these guys assume that everyone's going to be there. And that's why um, they sit around and say, like, uh, they don't get it. They just don't get it on the LG thing and all the rest of it. And, and they kind of scratch their head and they can't figure out why people can't just see things the way they see it. And so what they just do then is they apply their, what's called a hermeneutic, and they simply just say their method of getting things done is to say like they need more education. As a matter of fact, on the extreme, and you will see this, and uh, you know, I have an HR uh, my undergrad was in personnel. My wife's an HR expert. You know, she's a professional and stuff, so understand me. Be a little careful when I say something like this. But if you actually say something as a misogynist, you know, you say something against women or whatever, they will send you to the internment camp and retrain you. You will have to take hours of learning how to speak to women. Okay? And you're like, yeah. But... Uh, Charles Taylor, and once again, not being, he's a philosopher, he's not saying anything demeaning or pejorative, this actually follows, follows Karl Marx out of the communist tradition. Not because communism's bad, but it is an entire system where it says, we don't really care about understanding the world, we just need to change the world. It's all being driven by money and power, and all we need to simply do is make everyone according to their means, according to their ability, right, and what they need. Just level the playing field, and this follows that sort of pattern. There is no God. It's atheism, right? And um, if we can just get there, and the problem is, as we all know from our lifetime, is that communism failed 
because it was an idealistic uh, state, right? There's a couple of countries still left, maybe three, that haven't turned totalitarian. Well, actually, they all turned totalitarianism. Okay, well, never mind. There's none left. But, um, <laughs> but the idea is that if we can force people, if we can go through communism, we'll get to socialism. And that bright, glorious El Dorado that's always just around the corner, we will someday arrive at. Now, these guys say, like, well, you guys started it. You guys in your heaven. Someday we're all going to go to heaven, and evil will be judged on some judgment day, and those that did bad will go to hell, and those that did good will go to heaven. Because this is a child of this one. These guys, I don't know where they came from. But um, it came from him. <laughs> That's who they came from. Uh, and Huxley and the rest of them. So you guys tracking with me on this? Questions, comments, corrections? Yes, sir? You're asking, do they have a veneer of, say, being an anti-humanist, but they actually go to church and everything? That was uh, Charles Taylor who says they gang up on each other. And I think that's his way of saying a veneer, you know, that they have the, you know, melts in your hand or not in your mouth or whatever. Yeah, well, the problem is all three of them aren't really aware of that there are any of this, and that's why I'm kind of pointing it out. Yeah, this. I mean, who knows? Maybe this should have been a Venn diagram, you know. Actually, I think that's probably more accurate. But it just depends on which one you gravitate towards. I like this one. I like this one. I like this one. Charles Taylor just chose to say they gang up on each other. You said there were maybe four. There's another one. He tends to split this one off into sort of a Christianized one, which is exactly what you guys are pointing out. Uh, and that's where he actually puts himself over here in a little camp. <laughs> Wasn't that nice of him to do that? Uh, so, um, so I remember I was in undergrad. I was up at KU, and uh, I asked. I had a New Testament professor, and he's from Harvard. It was really interesting. He was in for one year for Harvard because his wife moved back so they could have a, a child. And there I am, you know, coming out of my fundamentalist background. And I, and I, I, I don't know who asked him in class, like, "Are you a Christian?" Because you know, for all of us Bible kids at KU, we're like, "This guy's not a Christian." You know, because he's doing all the source criticism on who wrote the Bible, and we all thought God did. And uh, he said, I'm a Christian humanist. And I'm like, that's a trick answer, isn't it? You're, what's a Christian humanist? And now I kind of know. So, yes, sir. So they sound more like a Scientologist or something like that, the exclusive humanism. Uh, no, because Scientology, well, I actually don't know Scientology. It is pretty materialistic. There's no real transcendence. There's no mystery to it, right? Well, if you're doing something magical, then you're a transcendent. This is purely materialistic. In other words, what you see is all there is. You know, this is Bertrand Russell following existentialism saying, when you die, you rot. You just join the big fertilizer plan. There's no spirit. There's no soul. There's nothing beyond. That's all you got. So heaven, you know, is a place on earth. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, you know... Um, <laughs> And uh, it's just um, Belinda Carlisle, right? Am I correct? Okay, phew, I've got to get my theologians correct here. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, it's, it's all just right here. So do with it what you can with your one life that you've been given. Now, we say that sort of thing around here at Lakeland too, don't we? Because we believe life is a gift. And I think these guys think they all, well, I don't know if these guys think it's an entitlement, but these guys think it's a gift. Will I? Um, if I can, 
Uh, like I said at the beginning, I get a little, uh, and I don't mean to say uncaring, I think philosophically I have an ambivalence toward it because I keep zooming out all the time. And, and just personally, I tend to treat people as individuals, and I really resist the grouping idea. There are gay people. Like, no, I have friends. So I have a hard time tying it back in other than the fact that these guys are saying it's a certain way, the secular humanist here. They're saying every, surely everyone should understand this now. And what I'm pointing out, actually Charles Taylor pointed out, is that this is a construct. They have, it is outside of them, but they don't realize it. And that's my only tie back into it, Tara, is, is that there's this notion that somehow everyone should agree and understand the way it's supposed to be. And, and it's a big assumption, you know. And the church has a big assumption as well, as well or at least certain types of church or whatever. And, I, and they, can, they are imposed on each other. You're dealing with competing worldviews, folks. Uh, you're saying, um, anytime I read like something in the paper or a newsfeed or whatever, something like that, do I run it through this filter of these three worldviews and say, huh, yeah, yes, that's what I do. Well, they, they just simply, uh, which ones, what do they all bring to the table, like on any kind of given issue? I mean, there's a little bit of um, my own, what would you call it, judgmentalism or, you know, dividing and splitting, and which is, I don't think is healthy. But nonetheless, you know, because you get the eye roll when you categorize people, and that's not a cool thing, you know, to categorize people. But um, nonetheless, I understand that when someone's talking about an anti-humanist thing, I'm like, oh, well, that's an anti-humanist thing. They have certain assumptions, and they make those assumptions that they think are true for all of us, that everyone should be a sovereign state and be left alone, and that they don't owe, that they think everybody else in the world, they can't understand why everybody else... Doesn't just leave everybody else alone. Stop shoving your junk down my throat. Get away. So, and they don't understand that they have that type of a consciousness. This is not a new thing, by the way, guys. This is, uh, it took us a long time to come to a constitution as a founding nation because this voice was there as well. I, I kind of make jokes about it now, but in the, this is a big deal in the formation of America. The, and they weren't called anti-humanists. They were simply called people who love freedom and liberty. You know, this group is the one that wasn't really around yet. <laughs> uh, you really had the church, and you had people that were seeking liberty. Let's see, what did Ben Franklin say? He said, um, democracy is a, uh, a, a lion and a tiger and a lamb sitting down trying to decide what to have for lunch. <laughs> and he said, and, and liberty is a well-armed lamb at the meeting. <laughs> so uh, you have lambs that are anti-humans because they got a weapon. Uh, so, so I think a lot, you know, even Thomas Paine, which comes to my mind, I think about every day, which is, um, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. You know, I mean, that's a very American ideology thing. I think these guys tend to just say, I'll, these days, I'll just fight to the death for my right to say it. So you're saying um, it could be helpful if you had the construct that there are different worldview voices. If you were lesbian, gay, bisexual, you know, transgendered, if you could understand these. That's a 
pretty sophisticated thing to impose on people. Uh, it would be nice, you know. I mean, I have my little part here where, I like, I think education is really important. And, you know, obviously I've spent a bunch of money on it. Uh, but, you know, so um, I think that would be a powerful thing. I, I do tend to kind of zoom out and say, like, it would be nice if we could, I, I get around to thinking, like, how would you fix the deadlock? How do you fix it? And somehow it's got to move past just simply lobbying insults at people and, and gathering in and starting some new group and just ranting. Yes, ma'am. That's, that's right. You have to be able to hear each other. You know, I mean, the, the watchword for the beginning of the country was compromise, compromise, compromise. Democracy is based upon compromise. And in our public square, in this country, if there's no, if there's no compromise, if there's not some willing, like, you don't get anything done. I know none of you guys can imagine that, but that's just, you know, you, that's what has to happen. So um, there are other things and other constructs, and I have several others, you know, that we could run through sometime, but I, I think you're right. I really do think the thing is really sitting around kitchen tables is the place to get it done, you know, and doing the real fundamental communication thing of, which I don't do, but I'd like to be able to be really an expert at it, even though I learned it 30 years ago, which is like, repeat what they're saying and what the emotion is. So you, you think, you know, that being gay is um, done by God. You sound really agitated. You know, that's good communication when you're sitting around talking. You know, not just sitting around doing the thing like I do and we all do, which is just waiting for them to kind of get close to finishing so you can just step on what they're saying. Right. That would be a more important thing to do. You know, I mean, um, just on a personal comment, um, actually, all this has been a personal comment, but uh, I went to seminary and... I wasn't really adamant against women in ministry, but I thought the scripture seemed clear on it, and I changed my opinion on that. I went to, but, and I'll get to this in a second because we were talking about this, and I changed my opinion on infant baptism because I was raised Southern Baptist. We didn't do that. We did immersion and all that stuff. And, um, and then I learned, you know, Reformed theology. I have papers on that that are yay thick. On, from research and working my fanny off to understand what Scripture says. I didn't do it emotionally out of any of these. As a matter of fact, I had to disrupt my, what I thought was true based upon Scripture. We can disagree. It's got to be disagreements about Scripture. It can't be disagreements out of emotions, even though they all may be there. It's got to be that as a church, our sacred text is the Bible. We, we have to have the Bible. We can disagree about how the Bible is understood, okay? It would be really nice if the hard work is put into it by me and anybody else. That's a lot to ask for people, you know. Marta, Garrett, and myself are teaching pastors. This is what we do, you know. We're nerds on this sort of thing. Garrett really likes it. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I mean, no, I mean, but that's what we do. So positions can change, right? But at least inside the church, there is a way to go about it. 
at least from our little perspective.